The author of this definition, Dr. J.G. Voss, has observed further by way of explanation that amillennialism teaches that there will be a parallel and contemporaneous development of good and evil, God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom, in this world which will continue until the second coming of Christ. At the second coming of Christ, the resurrection and judgment will take place, followed by the eternal order of things, the absolute perfect kingdom of God, in which there will be no sin, suffering, nor death. A quote from Blue Banner, Faith and Life, January-March issue, 1951. Amillennialists see no scriptural evidence for a millennium on either post- or premillennial principles. Some amillennialists understand the term to relate to the entire Christian era or church age, that is, to the period between the first and second advent of Christ. Others understand it to relate to a particular part of this period. Still others, more consistently it seems to us, apply it to the intermediate state. The term is thus used sometimes in a broad, sometimes in a narrow sense. In the broad sense it denies that the thousand years means that during the church age there is to be either a period of righteousness and peace as set forth by postmillennialism, or a personal reign of Christ on earth with the saints as set forth by premillennialism. In the narrow sense it holds that the thousand years has reference not to anything that happens on earth but to the reign of the saints with Christ in the intermediate state. With the broad sense of the term in mind, Dr. Burkhoff says, some premillennialists have spoken of amillennialism as a new view and as one of the most recent novelties, but this is certainly not in accord with the testimony of history. The name is new indeed, but the view to which it is applied is as old as Christianity. It had at least as many advocates as Chileism among the church fathers of the second and third centuries, supposed to have been the heyday of Chileism. It has ever since been the view most widely accepted, is the only view that is either expressed or implied in the great historical confessions of the Church, and has always been the prevalent view in Reformed circles. A quote from Systematic Theology, page 708. While not necessarily agreeing that amillennialism is the only view expressed or implied in the confessions, nor that it has always been the prevalent view in Reformed circles, Postmillennialism, having been at least for a considerable time the prevailing view in American Reformed theology, we believe this analysis is essentially correct. Similarly, Dr. John F. Walverd, a premillennialist and editor of the magazine Bibliotheca Sacra, acknowledges that Reformed eschatology has been predominantly amillennial. Most, if not all, of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation were amillennial in their eschatology, following the teachings of Augustine. From the issue of January-March, 1951. In regard to Augustine, the fact of the matter is that in his teaching there are elements of both post- and amillennialism. He is therefore claimed by both schools. Dr. Alice has brought this out clearly and in the following comments has given quite a full and accurate outline of the Augustinian eschatology. Says he, The view which has been most widely held by opponents of millenarianism is associated with the name of Augustine. He taught that the millennium is to be interpreted spiritually as fulfilled in the Christian church. 
He held that the binding of Satan took place during the earthly ministry of our Lord, Luke 10:18. That the first resurrection is the new birth of the believer, John 5:25, and that the millennium must correspond therefore to the interadventual period or church age. This involved the interpretation of Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6 as a recapitulation of the preceding chapters instead of as describing a new age following chronologically on the events set forth in chapter 19. Living in the first half of the first millennium of the church's history, Augustine naturally took the 1,000 years of Revelation 20 literally and he expected the second advent to take place at the end of that period. But since he somewhat inconsistently identified the millennium with what then remained of the sixth Chiliad of human history, he believed that this period might end about A.D. 650 with a great outburst of evil, the revolt of Gog, which would be followed by the coming of Christ in judgment. It is also to be noted that all forms of the Augustinian view, by which we mean all views which discover the millennium in the interadventual period or in some part of it, whether that part be past, present, or future, may properly be called both amillennial and postmillennial. They are amillennial in the sense that they all deny that after the present dispensation has been terminated by the resurrection and rapture of the saints, there is to be a reign of Christ on earth with the saints for 1,000 years before the last judgment. But since they identify the millennium with the whole or with some part of the present gospel age, they may also be called postmillennial. In this sense, Augustine was a postmillennialist. But while this is true, the word postmillennial has come to be so identified with the name of Whitby that as used by very many writers on the subject, it applies exclusively to that view which regards the millennium as a golden age of the church which is wholly future, perhaps still remote, and which is to precede the second advent. A quote from Prophecy and the Church, pages 3 and 4. We have said that in the narrow sense of the term, amillennialism holds that the thousand years has reference to the intermediate state. This view was set forth most clearly by a German theologian, Kleifoth, 1874. He held that Revelation 20 follows chronologically after Revelation 19. But not finding what he believed to be scriptural support for a millennium on earth, he concluded that the reign of the saints with Christ could only relate to the intermediate state. Since the term has been used in two senses, some confusion was bound to arise. But at any rate, we have seen it is, in reality, an ancient system. It evidently is in the narrow sense that some premillennialists have understood it, that is, Schaefer and Gabeline, who have referred to it rather contemptuously as a new and novel system. Amillennialism has been most fully developed by the Dutch theologians, Drs. Abraham Kuyper, Hermann Babnink, and others. On the continents of Europe, even to the present day, it can justly be called the standard Reformed and Lutheran theology. On the other hand, the outstanding American theologians of the later 19th and early 20th century have been postmillennialists. In comparatively recent years, particularly since 1930, a considerable number of American theologians have produced scholarly books setting forth the amillennial position, as has been indicated earlier in this study. 
Practically all of these books, however, have been concerned primarily with the refutation of premillennialism and have given comparatively little space to the development of the amillennial position. During the same period, particularly since the appearance of the Schofield Reference Bible, there has been an almost endless flow of premillennial and dispensational books and articles, far surpassing in volume either the post- or amillennial writings. At the present time, amillennialism is the official view of the conservative Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, which has a membership of more than two million and sponsors a worldwide Lutheran Hour radio program. It is also the view of the equally conservative Christian Reformed Church, likewise sponsoring an extensive radio program known as the Back to God Hour and by the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Chapter 2, page 113 Statements by Representative Amillennialists Perhaps the best way to set forth the doctrinal position of amillennialism is to let its leading advocates speak for themselves. This we shall do in considerable detail. Probably the most representative spokesman in the United States is Dr. Louis Burkhoff, for 38 years a professor in Calvin Seminary and author of a very excellent Systematic Theology, 1941. He says, There are very large numbers who do not believe that the Bible warrants the expectation of a millennium, and it has become customary of late to speak of them as amillennialists. The amillennial view is, as the name indicates, purely negative. It holds that there is no sufficient ground for the expectation of a millennium and is firmly convinced that the Bible favors the idea that the present dispensation of the kingdom of God will be followed immediately by the kingdom of God in its consummate and eternal form. It is mindful of the fact that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is represented as an eternal and not as a temporal kingdom. Isaiah 9 verse 7, Daniel 7 14, Luke 1 33, Hebrews 1 8, and chapter 12 verse 28, 2 Peter 1 11, and Revelation 11 15, and that to enter the kingdom of the future is to enter upon one's eternal state, Matthew 7 verses 21 and 22, to enter life, Matthew 18 verses 8 and 9, and to be saved, Mark 10, verses 25 and 26. This was found on page 708 of Systematic Theology. Here we notice particularly his statements that the amillennial view is purely negative, that any idea of a millennium on either post or premillennial grounds is ruled out as without scripture support, that one phase of the kingdom is acknowledged as being in existence during the present dispensation, and that the present dispensation is to be followed immediately by the kingdom in its consummate and eternal form. One of the most comprehensive statements is found in Professor Floyd E. Hamilton's book, The Basis of Millennial Faith, 1942. He says, The name itself is unfortunate in that it would seem to indicate that its advocates do not believe in the thousand-year period of Revelation 20. The name literally means no millennium, while as a matter of fact its advocates believe that the millennium is a spiritual or heavenly millennium, rather than an earthly one of a literal reign of Christ on earth before the final judgment. 
From one point of view, it might be called a variety of postmillennialism, since it believes that the spiritual or heavenly millennium precedes the second coming of Christ. The only mention in the Bible of a kingdom of Christ limited to a thousand years is in the twentieth chapter of the Revelation, where it is said that the souls are seen reigning with Christ during the one thousand years. The amillennialist interprets this as indicating the spiritual reign with Christ of the disembodied spirits in heaven during the one thousand years. A thousand, the number of perfection or completion, is held to be the symbolic reference to the perfect period, or the complete period between the two comings of Christ. The picture of eschatological events without any discussion at present of supporting scripture passages is as follows. Like the premillennialist, we view the world as a mixture of good and evil up to the time of the rapture. We have no hope or expectation that the whole world will grow better until it is all converted to Christianity. We expect that wars will continue right up to the time of the end when Christ comes to set things right. We expect the elect to be gathered out of an evil world, though we believe that the command of Christ to preach the gospel to the whole world must be obeyed and that it is our duty to endeavor to establish a Christian society so far as it is within our power to do so. But while we have the obligation to do this, we by no means expect that the whole of society will be Christianized. In fact, we expect the forces of evil to grow more and more violent in their opposition to Christianity and Christians. This in no way excuses us from the attempt to propagate the Christian principles as well as the gospel in the world. At the close of the present age, we expect the forces of evil to head up in a powerful combination of political, economic, and religious power led by the Antichrist. At the close of the reign of the Antichrist, or man of sin, he institutes a terrible persecution against the Christian church, not against the Jews, as some premillennialists assert. In this terrible tribulation, vast numbers of Christians are killed, but at the climax, when the hosts of Satan seem to be on the point of complete victory during the battle of Armageddon, Christ appears in the Shekinah glory, the resurrection of all men takes place, and the transfigured bodies of the dead and living saints are caught up to welcome their Savior. Then, as a terrible outpouring of the wrath of God occurs, smiting the unbelieving nations of the world into destruction, the Jewish people look on him whom they pierced, repent and believe instantly in their Messiah. They too are transfigured with the living church of Christ and join in the rapture of the united body of the elect church of Christ of all ages. This completes the number of the elect and from that point onward there is no more salvation for men. After the judgment, the eternal kingdom of God is established in the new heavens and on the new earth. It will continue throughout all eternity. Pages 35 through 37 Dr. Robert Strong, a minister in the Southern Presbyterian Church, in a series of articles on amillennialism, says, The amillennialist sees no ground in Scripture for holding to a millennium of righteousness before the Lord's coming, and he sees the possibility of such a millennium after the second advent expressly excluded in the New Testament teaching. Amillennialism agrees with premillennialism that the scriptures do not promise the conversion of the world through the preaching of the gospel. It agrees with postmillennialism that the coming of Christ ushers in the last judgment and the eternal state.
briefly outline the amillennial view is that preceding the coming of Christ there will be a widespread apostasy from the true faith climaxed by the manifestations of the personal antichrist thus the final great rebellion against Christ will be overthrown at the personal appearing of the Son of God who will come from heaven to take unto himself his own people and to demolish the forces of antichrist the wicked dead will be raised to judgment the earth and its works will be overwhelmed in fire and a new heavens and new earth will appear in which only righteousness will dwell a quote from the Presbyterian Guardian January 10, 1942 Dr. Rutgers holds that the millennium includes both the present age and the intermediate state and traces the origin of this view to Augustine in the writings of Augustine says Rutgers the thousand years is conceived of symbolically the saints of the church militant on earth and those who have departed are now reigning with Christ and in this sense we are now living in the midst of the millennium the church age is identified with the millennial age Augustine has molded and directed theological thinking in general has offered an interpretation of the kingdom of God the church and the millennial imagery of the apocalypse which held undisputed sway for more than a thousand years and even after all the enlightenment of modern times with highly technicalized terminology and specialized study maintains his hold he was followed by all the great Latin fathers Leo the Great, Gregory the Great, Albertus Magnus, Thomas Aquinas, etc. Chileism was thus banished rejected by the church and arose centuries later only in schismatic and sectarian movements where it periodically flourishes up to the present day in its crude and unscriptural form it never was countenanced by the governing faith of the church a quote from premillennialism in america page 71 1930 one of the clearest statements of the amillennial position is found in dr george l murray's millennial studies 1948 he believes that the binding of Satan was accomplished by Christ in his work of atonement at the time of his first advent referred to in Matthew 12:29. how can one enter into the house of the strong man and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house this binding is understood to have restricted Satan not in every way but only in regard to his work of deceiving the nations so that he no longer is able to prevent the gospel being proclaimed to them previous to that time only the Jews knew the way of salvation and all other nations were held in heathen darkness but since that time the gospel has been carried to the entire world concerning Revelation 20 verses 1 through 10 Dr. Murray says we believe that God led the seer of Patmos to present here a brief summary of the entire gospel dispensation from the first advent of him who claimed to have come down from heaven until the second advent when the kingdom which he founded shall be established in all its glory page 176 concerning the thousand years he says we believe that the figure of one thousand years presents a definite period of time measured by and known to God himself it is the cycle of time extending from our Lord's first advent to the day of his return it consists of the period during which the souls of the departed saints reign with Christ that is what they are now doing this heavenly reign of theirs is described as the first resurrection 
It is with regard to this phrase that many people have become confused, for they think that a resurrection must mean the raising of the body. To be sure, that is the sense in which we generally use the word, but the New Testament speaks very definitely, and in many places, of the raising of those who have been dead in trespasses and sins to a newness of life. When this regenerated soul leaves the body and goes to be with Christ, the spiritual resurrection has reached its culmination. For then the redeemed soul lives and reigns with Christ. This is the first resurrection. The so-called millennial reign of the saints and martyrs with Christ is a present reality. The figure of a thousand years represents the period during which they are to reign and live with him, leading up to his return with them. Pages 184-186 through 186. Dr. Albertus Peters believed that the thousand years, understood symbolically, related to a comparatively tranquil period in church history, that this period began at the point in history when paganism ceased to be a menace to the Christian church. He adds that, If looked at from the standpoint of the Roman Empire, this was at the accession of Constantine the Great, if the barbaric nations to the north are included in the view, it comes some centuries later, in the time of Charlemagne. The thousand years are taken to mean a period of great length. At the end of the period, there will be a revival of the conflict with paganism. A quote from Studies in the Revelation of St. John, page 305. Clyphoth was one of the first to hold that the millennium related not to an earthly state at all, but to the reign of the souls, of the blessed dead with Christ in the intermediate state. This, as we have pointed out, is amillennialism in the strictest sense of the word, for it conceives of the millennium as something entirely apart from this world. From the foregoing it should be clear that an exact definition of amillennialism is rather difficult to formulate. Different and to some extent conflicting views are set forth by those who call themselves by that name. The word literally means no millennium. Some relate the millennium to a part or all of the church age. Others relate it to the reign of the saints with Christ in the intermediate state. Nearly all understand the term symbolically. As against premillennialism, they hold that there is to be no personal reign of Christ on earth with the saints. As against postmillennialism, they deny that the world is to be Christianized during this dispensation. Although some have an element of postmillennialism in their system, in that they hold that Christ comes after the millennium, symbolically understood. Most of the books written by amillennialists have premillennialism as their special targets, understandably so, since amillennialism rejects the 1,000 year earthly kingdom set forth by premillennialism, and agrees with postmillennialism that Christ's coming marks the end of earthly history. In all of these books, the positive statement regarding amillennialism is very brief. This, of course, is understandable if, as Dr. Burkhoff says, the system is purely negative. Only a few brief paragraphs are needed to show what a system is not. The tenets of amillennialism, like those of premillennialism, allow its holders to maintain that the second coming of Christ is imminent, since they see the millennium either as the present church age or as the intermediate state which may come to an end at any time. Also, as with the premillennialists, they usually are inclined to take a pessimistic view of the future of the church, 
holding either that conditions will continue until the end, much as they are now, or that they will grow progressively worse. Dr. Murray, for instance, after a reference to the loosing of Satan for a little while toward the close of the gospel age, adds, We wonder if we are not witnessing this in our own day. 1948 A quote from Premillennial Studies, page 186 Amillennialism agrees with premillennialism in teaching that a personal antichrist is to appear shortly before the return of Christ. Dr. Strong says of Christ at his coming that he consumes antichrist and his rebel followers in a fiery overthrow that engulfs also the world. A quote from the Presbyterian Guardian, June 10th issue, 1942. Chapter 3, The Kingdom Prophecies, page 119. Much of what we would say in refutation of amillennialism has already been said in setting forth the postmillennial position and does not need to be repeated here. We must say, however, that we understand the Bible to teach very definitely that the world is to be converted to Christianity before Christ returns and that the amillennial position, which makes no provision for a Christianized world, leaves the whole continent of prophecies unexplained, many of which then become quite meaningless. The kingdom prophecies of the Old Testament, as well as various statements in the Psalms and in the New Testament, often in highly figurative language, surely foretell a future golden age of some kind. We are bound to say that in this regard we agree with the premillennialists as against the amillennialists, that there is to be a millennium, that there is in fact yet something great in store for the human race before this world order ends. But since we believe that the premillennial notion of an earthly kingdom after the return of Christ is in error, we are convinced that these prophecies and promises must find fulfillment before that event. What shall we say, for instance, to the following? Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of Jehovah's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. And many nations shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of Jehovah, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of Jehovah from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will decide concerning many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 5 Here the prophecy of Isaiah 2 verses 2 through 4 is repeated in almost identical words, to which the prophet adds, And they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of Jehovah of hosts hath spoken it. For all the peoples walk every one in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of Jehovah our God for ever and ever. Here in figurative language and under Old Testament terminology of Mount Zion and the house of Jehovah, which was the only terminology that the people to whom this prophecy was given would have been able to understand, was predicted the worldwide conquest and dominion of the church, a Christianized people dwelling securely, free from the devastations of war, and doing righteously. 
In other places in scripture, the mountain of Jehovah's house is spiritualized to mean the church. See particularly Hebrews 12:22, where speaking of the church, it is said, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In Isaiah 2, we are taught that the church is to be prominent, like a house on the top of a mountain, or like a mountain on a plain and that its guidance will be sought willingly in all phases of human life, in the spiritual, social, economic, and political realms. The statement that all peoples shall flow into it must mean that people all over the world are to be Christian, and that they will seek to know God's will as it is made known to them through his word. Their beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks is clearly figurative language a figure appropriate for the time in which this prophecy was given, but to be fulfilled in a far distant age in which the nations would not spend their energies and substance in destructive wars. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. To sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree is again a figure appropriate to that day and age, a symbol of contented, peaceful home life, pointing forward to a time of worldwide righteousness on which alone true peace can be based. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 10 And there shall come forth a shoot out of the stock of Jesse, and a branch out of his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of Jehovah shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Jehovah. And his delight shall be in the fear of Jehovah, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither decide after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And the righteousness shall be the girdle of his waist, and faithfulness the girdle of his loins. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Jehovah as the waters cover the sea. And it shall come to pass in that day that the root of Jesse that standeth for an ensign of the peoples, unto him shall the nations seek, and his resting place shall be glorious. In Isaiah chapter 11 verse 9, the statement that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Jehovah as the waters cover the sea, clearly foretells a time when righteousness shall be triumphant over all the earth. This fits perfectly into the postmillennial system. It does not fit into the amillennial system. Amillennialists take it to be a description of the final heavenly kingdom and so place it after the resurrection and judgment. But there is no sufficient reason for assigning it to the heavenly kingdom except that it does not fit into their scheme of things for this world. Verses 1 through 5 are clearly a prediction of the coming Messiah. Verses 6 through 9 foretell the nature of the change that is to be wrought in Messiah's kingdom. 
Verse 10 is another messianic prediction declaring that the Messiah shall be an ensign of the peoples and that unto him shall the nations seek. That clearly speaks of this world, not of the next. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 9 loses its force when taken in any other than a postmillennial sense. Similarly, swords and plowshares and spears and pruning hooks spoken of in Isaiah 2 verse 4 cannot be thought of as having any place in heaven. This is of course figurative language. It foretells an age of peace, contentment and safety right here on this earth. Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 4 Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry nor lift up his voice nor cause it to be heard in the street. A bruised reed will he not break and a dimly burning whip will he not quench. He will bring forth justice in truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he have set justice in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. Isaiah 65 verses 17 through 25 For behold I create a new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create for behold I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people and there shall be heard in her no more the voice of weeping and the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old and the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree shall be the days of my people and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain nor bring forth for calamity. For they are the seed of the blessed of Jehovah and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call I will answer and while they are yet speaking I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith Jehovah. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34 Behold the days come, saith Jehovah, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith Jehovah. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Jehovah. I will put my law in their inward parts, and in their heart will I write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, No, Jehovah, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Jehovah. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sins will I remember no more. Joel 2.28 And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Malachi 1.11 
and from the rising of the sun even unto the going down of the same my name shall be great among the Gentiles these are very great and precious promises and certainly they point forward to conditions that have not yet been enjoyed on this earth they are in fact so far reaching and expansive that they stagger the imagination some amillennialists finding no place in their system for these conditions attempt to carry them over into the eternal state but references to the nations Isaiah 2 verses 2 and 4 judging the people with righteousness Isaiah 11 verse 4 people dying at the age of 100 years Isaiah 65 verse 20 etc point unmistakably to this world of necessity much Old Testament prophecy designed for fulfillment in an old age that had not yet dawned had to be given in figurative language had our present day terminology been used it would have been unintelligible to the people of that day the shoot out of the stock of Jesse and the root of Jesse that standeth for an ensign of the peoples Isaiah 11 verses 1 through 10 clearly refer to the coming Messiah the mountain of Jehovah's house exalted above the hills or Mount Zion from which shall go forth the law and the word of Jehovah to the nations Isaiah 2 verses 2 through 4 is the New Testament church which divinely established and as the custodian of the gospel is the true successor to Old Testament Israel today it is carrying the gospel to all the world and is exerting a marvelously great influence for good wherever it goes compare again Hebrews 12 verses 22 and 23 but ye are come present tense not future unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable host of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven the wolf dwelling with the lamb the leopard lying down with the kid the young child putting its hand unhurt into the adder's den Isaiah 11 verses 6 and 8 evidently means that peoples and forces now hostile and antagonistic and at enmity with each other shall be converted and so changed by Christianity that they shall live and work together harmoniously in Messiah's kingdom Messiah smiting the earth with the rod of his mouth and slaying the wicked with the breath of his lips Isaiah 11 4 is clearly parallel with Revelation 19 verses 15 and 21 where the rider of the white horse wins an overwhelming victory over all his enemies by means of the sword that proceeds out of his mouth which we elsewhere have interpreted to mean the conversion of the world to Christ through the preaching of the gospel and the words dust shall be the serpent's food Isaiah 65 25 symbolizes the complete and ignominious defeat of Satan whose mouth would be mashed in the ground and filled with dust as his head was crushed under the heel of the feet of the woman Genesis 3:15, who was to cast down to the earth Revelation 12 verse 9 all the enemies of Christ and Satan foremost among them are to be put under his feet 1 Corinthians 15:25. and Paul writing to the Christians in Rome uses the same figure to describe either the victory of the Christian over sin or a particular triumph of the church in Rome over some evil persecuting force of that day when he says and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly Romans 16 20 
A similar statement is found in the Messianic 72nd Psalm, which describes Christ's conquest of the world, and his enemies shall lick the dust. Verse 9. Chapter 4, page 125, The Binding of Satan. The usual amillennial interpretation of Revelation 20, verse 2, is that the binding of Satan took place at the first advent, and that it was accomplished when Christ triumphed over him at the cross. In other words, the atonement is said to have been the effective means for the binding of Satan, and on that basis the millennium is said to have begun with the first advent and to continue until the second. The scripture cited to prove this is Matthew 12:29. How can one enter into the house of the strong man and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? We believe, however, that while the satisfaction which Christ, acting as the sinner's substitute, made to divine justice, which was the real substance of the atonement, was accomplished at that time, the binding of the devil spoken of in Revelation 20 verse 2 was not an event that was accomplished at any one particular time but that it is a long continuing action now in process of accomplishment and that while the devil has been bound in some respects he has not yet been bound in others. The statement that he is to be bound and cast into the abyss so that he can no longer deceive the nations teaches that this restraint is to be placed on him during the course of this present world that is during the gospel age while the nations still are in existence. It cannot relate to the intermediate state, as some say, nor to the eternal state, as others say, for in neither of those cases will the nations have any meaning. Furthermore, the angel who was to bind Satan was seen coming down out of heaven to the earth. Revelation 20, verse 1. The amillennialist cannot avail himself of the explanation given by the premillennialist that this restraint on Satan is to occur during the personal reign of Christ on earth, for he does not believe in such a reign. Nor is there much force in the usual amillennial explanation that since the first advent of Christ, the devil is bound in the sense that he can no longer prevent the proclamation of the gospel to the nations, and so hold them captive as he did in pre-Christian times. That explanation is too narrow and limited. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.stillwater.com swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, 
in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.